The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Well, Dror, welcome to another episode. Episode 76. Yeah, we're now recording this at the end of March. And this uh, is going to be episode 76. Those are a lot of episodes, you know. I know, I know. Yeah, and it's great to see, you know, hundreds of uh, views, downloads for each one of our uh, episodes. Absolutely, yeah. And the Video Insiders group, you know, on LinkedIn, if you didn't hear about it, uh, right now, as of this moment, we have 2,670 members. And that's great. You know, that's a community. So feel free to post interesting stuff that you find and to hold the discussions and uh, comment on the episodes that we publish. Yeah, we try and add value in the group. So please join us there. But Dror, let's jump into our interview. So I'm really excited that today we're talking with Nicholas Vea. He's a video engineer and streaming expert. He has an awesome blog that he's going to tell us about. He is fresh off Mile High Video, where he was the DJ at that conference. And we are going to talk to Nicholas about a blog post that he wrote that actually won an award at the Mile High Video. It was called Core Technologies for Streaming Workflows in 2021 and Beyond. So Nicholas, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Doro, for having me here. It's really a pleasure to be with you today and um, talk about all of this uh, story of the blog post and the uh, Mile High video. But I think you get it right. This is a good anecdote. I was actually the DJ at the uh, Mile High video, and uh, that's funny because I can get a two-hour slot, whereas all of the uh, the folks like uh, running for a speaking slot, they get 15 minutes and they get kick they get kicked off of the. <laughs> Off, off the podium. <laughs> You're smart. You're smart. You got two hours of stage time. Exactly. Yeah, I think my live video was a, was a great event. I mean, as usual, all of the conference talks are really uh, quality ones. And it's it's a place where uh, you always learn from your peers. I mean, there is there is no way uh, anyone can know uh, all of the, the topics that the, the presenters are talking about. And uh, that was really once again a, a very qualitative conference uh, with a great you know selection process for the talks. I was actually part of the uh, the committee for you know the selection of the topics. So that was really good. And and overall, I think that was that was really great to. Uh, to to see uh, a lot of industry friends coming from multiple continents, you know, after three years, uh, everyone was really uh, happy to, uh, you know, uh, finally meet again. So that was, uh, that was really a great experience. Well, why don't we dive in and uh, tell us, you know, just to start, tell us a little bit about yourself, your, your personal, professional background, and then, uh, you know, we want to get to the meat of the conversation and your blog. Tell us about what you're doing there, and then uh, let's jump into some of these topics that you've been writing about. So everything for me started with a website development uh, in France. I think it was around 98. And very quickly, I, I came to work on a radio project. We had like a bunch of 24-7 radio channels, and uh, I just fell in love with streaming. That was around 2000, right? And so uh, after that, I spent like 10 years in a, in a small company uh, specialized in live streaming services, mainly for 
corporate customers. And there I did a, a lot of platform architecture, development of production tools for synchronized metadata, especially that was, that was really my specialty. And that was really exciting because I touched like Basically all the streaming technologies, uh, you remember like the uh, real video, like uh, Windows Media, Flash, streaming and so on. So that was really a great ride for me to work in this company. Then I, I had a short time in a consulting company uh, working on SVOD project implementations in France and Mexico. And that's actually when I started the, uh, the El Trovemo blog uh, in 2011, I guess. Because basically afterwards, all of the, uh, the experiences I had on the, the professional level actually uh, fed the blog because it was like basically a report of what I was researching on a daily basis. And yeah, there was in France, there was also something very uh, interesting and very important for me, which was the, uh, the foundation of the, uh, the online video French squad. That was our group of uh, French video folks discussing in meetups. Now it's called Paris Videotech. And this is a very strong relationship uh, for me with uh, all of my peers in, in, in France and also abroad. Uh, here in the US, we have a very strong community and I'm very proud of what we, we did with this meetup group. And I worked for Akamai. That was also an interesting experience. Almost for five years, I was a solutions architect in the, uh, the media consulting team uh, in Paris. And I was mainly working on uh, major, uh, you know, sports events like World Cup and Olympics, everything uh, high scale, basically uh, for media. So that was really a um, very good experience for me and um, interesting to see how the, uh, from the inside, how a CDN is working. But yeah, at some point, uh, I felt I had to uh, move back to my original love for streaming and especially the uh, more like the video technologies. So that's that's why I I moved to um, AWS Elemental in 2017. I started there as a solutions architect, uh, also in Paris. And then I moved to uh, the headquarters in here in Portland as the product manager for uh, Media Package and also Speak, which is our... API for key exchange between uh, encoders and key servers. And that's pretty much uh, where I am now here in the, on the West Coast uh, in the US, enjoying the beautiful Oregon and um, also enjoying my work on a daily basis. This is just a fascinating experience and a great chance for you know, working for AWS and um, doing things uh, at scale. Sounds great. I mean, first of all, it's obvious that you are a video insider. And uh, that's why you're here on the show. Uh, a lot of experience um, in video in all different aspects. And also, you're passionate about it. You love it. Now, re regarding the blog, this is really interesting. Uh, you talked about the fact that you were using the blog to uh, document your own research as you were uh, studying new topics, uh, you know, writing about them. It's an excellent way to learn them better and, and to remember them. You know, I, I do the same sometimes. And then the blog was silent for a few years. And then last year you wrote this super comprehensive post on all the core technologies of streaming, ranging from uh, the protocols and the codex to the uh, content protection and, and the CDN and, and low latency, everything, and uh, reviewing all of the latest standardization efforts and what's happening in the industry in each one of these uh, aspects of streaming. And um, I think that uh, winning uh, the first prize in uh, the Mile High Video Best Blog Award is very well uh, deserved because the blog post is such uh, comprehensive that I think any video engineer would want uh, to read it uh, to see where, where things at. So what drove you to write this post 
uh, after so long and, and to cover so many topics in, in a single post. Indeed, it was like almost five years since I published the previous blog post. And uh, I felt maybe a bit frustrated uh, of not having, you know, uh, the necessary time during those five years to, to blog. I was obviously busy with my professional life and also starting, uh, you know, uh, DJing and uh, experimenting with others, other things than, than blogging. So I was really busy, but I've always wanted to, uh, to continue writing. Uh, you know, I've also been writing for streaming media between uh, 2014 and 17, did a lot of uh, State of MPEG-Dash articles and HBBTV there. Writing is, is really my passion, and uh, so I, I always wanted to uh, come back to it. So I felt five years after the, uh, the last blog post, that was really the, the right time because a lot of things had happened. Um, and new technologies, and that was important to see where we were. Yeah, I felt we also needed to highlight what's important because, you know, there are so many technologies and so many standardization efforts in the wild that sometimes it's hard for people to actually find out what's major and what's really, uh, you know, important for the next years to come. So that was that was roughly the uh, the spirit of that. But that was actually a continuation of all of the, uh, you know, the other articles that I had published uh, since 2011, I guess, uh, on the blog, like almost like 20 articles. Um, so that was really in the same in the same idea, which is inventiveness. That's that's what actually uh, El Trovemo uh, means in Esperanto. The word means inventiveness. And initially, I launched this blog to basically monitor uh, innovation applied to digital media and especially audio and video. So um, that was really the, the continuation of the uh, you know the spirit of the blog. Uh, Thierry Fautier, so he's working for Harmonic. And he's one of my uh, friends from the uh, the uh, Paris Videotech group. And so Thierry uh, contributed on the, on the blog with uh, two sections on uh, content-aware encoding and also open caching. And so that was really um, something interesting and I think valuable for, the, uh, for our community to have like uh, folks from different companies, uh, different corporate affiliations, uh, and we are also obviously competitors uh, on a daily basis, but uh, folks like that working together to produce something that is uh, that is useful for the, the video community, I think that was highly appreciated by, uh, by a lot of folks in the industry. And uh, actually, I received like tons of messages from uh, industry folks and friends and so many people like found the the blog uh, useful for their uh, you know projects and research so that was for me that was really like the uh, super rewarding to get all of those feedbacks yeah, uh, that was the real prize yes b even before the prize there was tons of messages and and thank you messages that was really great and that's actually what the blog is for sharing information insights analysis and that's that's the, my mission on the blog since the, since the beginning so i was really glad to receive uh, all of those feedbacks and obviously the, the price i think it's uh it's a great recognition from the industry peers you know and it was actually something serious you know like uh there was a committee that was like three uh persons uh evaluating each blog in the competition i guess we had like maybe more than 20 or 25 blogs so that was uh, that was really um a great satisfaction for me to win this prize and uh, I will continue to write and uh, try to uh, win it next year or maybe. Yeah, please do. And, and we're happy to uh, push 
some some more traffic to it. Uh, the role that this plays really is critical. You know, it's in some ways actually why we started the Video Insiders. Um, Jor and I, I, I can remember uh, leaving, um, I think it was NAB in 2018, shortly thereafter, and, you know, just talking about how every time you bring the ecosystem together, the industry comes together, there's so much learning that happens. But the problem is, is not everyone can even attend a show. Um, you know, there's certain roles and functions and in certain companies where it's actually very hard to go. So that's one problem. And even if you are lucky enough to be able to be there, there's so much going on, you know, that maybe you didn't happen to um, be at that particular cocktail party when a really highly relevant conversation happened, you know, so you lost out on that, on that learning. So I think this is a really critical objective, you know, that you've mapped out uh, to share. Yeah. And also what I like about the blog post is that, you know, some articles, some posts are kind of, uh, you know, academic. So they say, okay, we developed this algorithm, developed this technology, or even, you know, we're working in this standardization committee. This is the standard we are developing. Okay, that's great. Is anybody using it? And then th there's this other type of, of posts of articles which are promotional. You know, a company is saying, I developed this product, I developed this technology, or maybe even I've developed this standard. I'm working on this standard with two other companies. Okay, again, is anybody using it? But, but if you read this blog, you know, the, the main question that the video engineer is asking himself is, okay, now I have this task. I need to design a streaming system for my company or for somebody else. Which technologies should I use? Which protocols? Which standards? What is actually used in the industry? And uh, another thing that's important, what is going to be used in the next year or two? So what should I um, start uh, learning uh, today, So, which will be useful in the near future? And I think this is exactly what this blog post answers, you know, a very comprehensive overview of all these different technologies and actually what is emerging, what is uh, already kind of legacy and, and what's coming up in the next year or two. And that's really what uh, I just love about uh, this blog post and why it's so useful to video engineers. Yeah, thank you for your nice, nice words. I think the uh, the spirit of this blog is to, uh, exactly as you say, is to show the industry folks what can be used in production. Of course, it's uh, a lot about standardization uh, because standardization is critical for our industry. But as you said, the, the spirit is really, uh, let's pick the technologies that we, we need and we can put in production. Yeah, that's awesome. So with that spirit, there is a lot of talk about low latency. Let's talk about low latency protocols. A lot's been uh, written about and talked about around low latency Dash and obviously Apple's low latency HLS. What can you tell us about what's going on there? Yeah, sure. So I guess a low latency, at least for the, the Dash side of it, is, a, is already uh, almost an old technology because it started in 2017. So you can argue that it's supposedly already a mature technology, but the reality is that uh, as there was only the uh, the Dash uh, side of the world providing a low latency approach, uh, at least until uh, end of 2019, uh, where uh, low latency HLS arrived, there was some kind of uh, you know skepticism from many uh, companies, I guess, uh, about the fact that. Uh, it was worse for them to invest in low latency dash uh, while uh, all of the uh, Apple devices would uh, stay aside and would not benefit from low latency. So everyone really welcomed the uh, 
the low latency HLS uh, spec from Apple. And um, that was the, the end of a phase where we've seen like standards or proposals for low latency on, on HLS devices and players coming from the community. So that was a very uh, good effort, but obviously we needed something that was officially coming from Apple to get some stability and envision like a high scale deployments. But it also complicated things because the uh, low latency HLS protocol is not working like the low latency dash one, meaning in dash, uh, you do trunk transfer encoding. So the player is requesting only once and all of the fragments are coming uh, over the wire with this uh, trunk transfer encoding. Whereas low latency HLS is still using an approach where uh, each of the, the parts of the segments are delivered uh, independently because the heuristics of a low latency HLS player is pretty much the same as a regular HLS one, meaning uh, it's a full line speed uh, measurement, right? So the, the the technologies are really different. And uh, also the, the other aspect that complexifies the, the integration between the two is that if you want to use a, a common set of segments between latency HLS and latency dash, you need to have uh, full segments and latency HLS parts that are actually byte ranges from the bigger segment, right? That is produced on the fly. And that's generating a, a lot of complexity because uh, until a recent time, uh, most CDNs didn't support the, the caching of uh, byte ranges uh, when the, the segment is transferable, uh, chunk transfer encoding. And um, there was a, a lot of discussions and on how we would do that, requiring the uh, implementation of this uh, RFC about uh, HTTP random access and live content uh, in CDN. So it took a lot of time and not all CDNs are ready for that. Um, and it's still very complex to use this unified set of segments between the two technologies. And obviously not a lot of folks are, are doing it uh, still, so that's still gonna take some time uh, until the uh, you know the ecosystem is fully ready, uh, especially on the CDN side for supporting those kind of uh, hybrid approaches. But that's really the the way to go, right? Because as you know, CMAF is now a, a mature technology, and we obviously we need to uh, optimize the the cacheability on the CDN side. So using a single set of segments is really uh, still the, the holy grail for the industry. So that's still going to take some time, but we are getting there slowly but surely. So you'll still have two different protocols, but the, the actual media data in the segments will be the same. They will just be wrapped differently for each protocol. Yes, the latency dash segment is, is going to come uh, through this uh, trunk transfer encoding. And the, uh, the parts for the uh, latency HLS uh, are going to be by trangers inside those bigger segments. And so, yeah, the, the challenge is for CDNs to actually being able to cache those byte ranges when trunk transfer encoding is, is used. That's not obvious. So that, that's what uh, CDNs are uh, currently uh, working on. But yeah, once it's done, I guess that's going to be uh, the opening of a, an era of uh, you know full maturity for uh, the low latency protocols and uh, fully optimized in terms of uh, you know cacheability and traffic. So that's really exciting to see that we are finally getting there after a few years. And what speed does that get us down to? Is that three and a half seconds? Uh, you know, end to end, five seconds. You know, I, I see varying claims. Well, I guess low latency HLS is not designed for you know going under three seconds 
Dash has got more flexibility in terms of uh, configuration and, and options that you can use for going under three seconds. But obviously, HTTP in general is not really designed for ultra low latency, right? It's more for just regular low latency. And so the target here is more like to, to compete with the broadcast latency, let's say, between uh, five and 10 seconds. Uh, that's uh, roughly the range of latencies that we are uh, targeting with those technologies. If you want to go under, then that's probably something else that you need to use like WebRTC or those kind of things. So what I hear you saying, Nicholas, is the long pole is the CDN. You didn't mention anything about player. Is there some player considerations as well, or is it just a matter of the necessary updates and then a um, service, you know, obviously getting their users upgraded. But is there anything special on the player side, some some work that needs to be done that devices may not all support today? Well, I guess on the, the player side, in the Dash ecosystem, as the technology is, is fairly old now, uh, we have a good support across the board. The um, latency HS support is is somehow recent. It came in, uh, you know, in ExoPlayer, Shaka, or HSJS, like uh, throughout 2021, uh, end of 2020. So it's fairly recent. But um, I guess probably the the main problem is not the the software players, the ones that you can uh, use in the browser. The most problematic situation is the hardware players, like the you know all the connected TVs the Roku's of the of the world, uh, this is where you're you probably going to struggle because uh, those hardware-based players are sometimes, I mean, not updated from a firmware standpoint. And um, yeah, it's fairly hard to understand exactly which platform supports which protocol and uh, starting from which version. So I think, yeah, it's a general industry problem uh, that we have for many years, uh, all of the hardware-based player, uh, but that's going to continue with low latency. That's just going to be same story. We're still going to struggle a bit uh, with all of those players. But um, yeah, hopefully in the, uh, in the connected TV world, uh, low latency dash is going to be well supported. So... I guess that's uh, what most people are going to use there. Now, a related topic is um, content protection. I remember in the early days of streaming, after we finally, uh, everybody agreed on, on the codec, you know, everybody's going to use H.264, then the, the encryption was holding back the standardization because, you know, Apple was using one type of encryption and Microsoft was using another. And I understand that uh, lately there are uh, standards and protocols for protecting content that uh, you know enable servers and players and CDNs to uh, to connect to each other and to understand each other. So, wh- where do we stand today in the standardization of content protection? So, when CMAF was created, the deal was that the rest of the industry, meaning apart from Apple, would be adopting the CBCS encryption scheme, and that Apple would be basically adopting fragmented MP4 and uh, MP4-based format for the content. That was the initial deal, and it happened to some extent, meaning that the support for CBCS 
uh, encryption in players and devices uh, started really to appear, but uh, later than we what we were expecting. And you, you still can find some devices we, which don't support this uh, CBCS encryption scheme. And that's still slightly a problem, but that's uh, a diminishing problem because once uh, devices are renewed, then you get a new generation of devices and all of them are CBCS compliant. So there is still a bit of problem with this uh, encryption scheme support, but that's uh, getting better and better. The other aspect of the problem is how you uh, actually uh, exchange your keys and how you uh, manage all of the uh, you know the relationship between the, your packager and the uh, key server. And that was uh, that was the the topic of the uh, the Dash IF work on the uh, the CPIX, uh, specification. The thing is. Despite all of our efforts, uh, as you know, the, like the DRMs are are really not the definitive uh, measure for protecting content. There is a lot of uh, HDMI uh, hacks uh, in the wild, so DRM is not a, an absolute protection even uh, when you use like the uh, you know the trusted environment and the, all of the hardware uh, DRM pipeline. Yeah, I think in in the old days they used to talk about the analog hole in content protection. When it goes to analog, when it's on the screen, then you can actually catch capture it and digitize it again and yeah there are many ways of circumventing drm so that's that's where uh ab watermarking gets in the gets in the game right because ab watermarking is uh, is basically the last resort it's the last tool that uh, at least for the moment that you can you can use after drms because once your drm has been hacked you need to find the source of a leak that's where ab watermarking gets in the game by creating like uh, two variants of the streams and combining segments in a unique sequence for every end user, you can uh, afterwards identify who is the source uh, sequence and you can trace it back and shut down the uh, the stream for this person. This is an interesting move and actually uh, Dash IF just released, as we speak yesterday, the new uh, AB watermarking specification for encoders, origins, and CDN uh, that we've been working on at Dash IF since a couple of months now. Uh, it's now in community review. It's going to go until August. Uh, August, I guess, where we want to publish the, um, the final version of the specification. But that was the uh, pretty much the, the last component that we needed because um, before that, we had a UHD forum releasing an interesting API for the uh, integration of AB watermarking technologies inside encoders. So the pure encoding scope was already covered by this uh, UHD forum spec. And now the, uh, the Dash IF spec is complementing this uh, UHD forum spec and we have the rest of the chain, basically, uh, up to the CDN edge, and even all of the CMS aspects uh, are covered with the, um, the tokens. Everything is now, uh, you know, uh, standardized and, and uh, allows vendors to basically do a single implementation that works with multiple AB watermarking technologies. Now, another key technology in efficient streaming, because today, you know, we're streaming so many concurrent streams of video, whether it's VOD or live, and everything is still being done, you know, in, in unicast. So when you stream uh, an event, you're streaming, you know, millions of copies of the same data, basically, of the same video to all those different users, and each one of them needs to have a connection in order to get those packets. And, you know, the vision, the dream of multicast has always been, you know, like broadcast television, right? You have an antenna, you have a receiver, everybody can receive this uh, single stream because everybody's seeing, at least in live, everybody's seeing the same thing. 
And there have been some uh, uh, attempts to standardize it in, in the cellular technologies, even back in the days of 3G and again in, in 4G and obviously in 5G. But on the internet, where, where do we stand today with the whole concept of, of multicasting for live and, and caching for, uh, for VOD? Well, I think um, as regards to the use of multicast over the internet, we are still limited by the fact that um, you cannot really guarantee that a video player can get a stream in multicast uh, coming from a CDN edge. It's just because of the nature of the, the network and the fact that multicast uh, is not activated by default uh, on you know all the routers on the route between the uh, the edge and the player. So you need a, a basically a, a managed network to make it work, right? So uh, multicast uh, over the public internet is, is still uh, something relatively hard to achieve, right? And uh, you need really specific network conditions for that. Yeah, and we heard in the previous episode from Broadpeak that. Uh, there are certain collaborations going on between content providers and ISPs and, and network providers that when they work together, you know, the network providers open those uh, channels and enable the content providers to use multicast on those specific networks. Yeah, yeah. This needs uh, obviously like specific discussions and agreements between the, uh, you know, the network providers just because by default it's not open bar, right? You need uh, specific configuration. But once you get this configuration, this is really interesting because of the uh, scalability of multicast and also the fact that now multicast ABR is uh, is also standardized as part of DVB and there is all of this, uh, you know, 5G multicast capability also there. So there are a lot of technologies that can be used um, to apply multicast for, you know, ABR content. So that's good to see that we, we made some some progress there. But still, what I've been trying to develop on the on the blog post was, was that there are still some default approaches in the, in the way uh, multicast is used for ABR that probably can be can be improved. So the first one, I guess, was the uh, the dynamic provisioning, because right now we are still mainly on an approach where you establish your service plan and you basically declare which. Uh, channels you want to you want to deliver in uh, in multicast and that's pretty static. It's not based on the popularity of the of the live stream. So, I guess one of the first uh, improvement would be to actually take into consideration how popular are the uh, the OTT streams and uh, dynamically uh, provision the network so that they can also uh, suddenly be available over multicast and not only unicast. So. That would be one of the things, and actually I'm, I'm discussing this with the, uh, the 5G Max folks uh, who are working on this kind of prototyping. And the second thing is the, uh, the all-in-one approach of multicast, meaning that when you multicast, uh, both the manifest and the segments are going to be delivered over multicast, meaning that you cannot easily customize the manifest if you, let's say, you want to replace uh, programs or you want to do customized, you know, uh, individualized ad insertion. Everything becomes suddenly very complex, right, uh, compared to the regular SSI process that we use, uh, you know, over the internet in Unicast. So one of the, the ideas that I'm, I'm pushing in the blog is, is the fact that we probably need to work on decoupling the manifest from the segments, meaning 
continue to uh, get the uh, the media segments being delivered over multicast and and actually deliver all of the manifest over unicast so that we can apply you know uh, manifest manipulation on those manifests and simplify all of the uh, insertion thing while still benefiting from the uh, the scalability of multicast for the media segments so i guess this is where we need to go to benefit from you know the best of both worlds yeah unicast and multicast so I have a question on practical implementation. So I can recall, it, certainly 10 years ago, it probably was 2011, 2012, where I first saw a demo, and I think it was Cisco, and I believe also Eris was showing multicast. Uh, so this has been talked about for a while. Obviously, 10 years ago, it was you know stuff uh, only happening in labs and um, closed, managed, controlled networks. You know, is this coming? Are there any OTT services that have real plans to deploy this, or is this still a little bit stuff of academic? And I'm just wondering what you're what you're seeing or hearing. What we hear from uh, you know companies like uh, Broadpeak or Cinemedia is that they have deployments in the wild. Uh, for telcos. So this is really in production. I think it's not theoretical anymore. So they, they prove that this can work uh, at scale. The main question is how we can simplify it and make it really transparent. Uh, maybe there is some form of uh, standardization initiative that might be required to simplify the uh, you know the enablement of multicast from a, a unicast edge but you know i mean overall if you look at the the standardization space everything that is related to cdn is actually not very well standardized. It's very emerging. If you look at things like uh, the Common Access Token Initiative that is uh, currently being discussed at CTA Wave, it's fairly recent. Uh, it's just been a couple of months that we discussed it there. I think that's probably the next frontier for the industry is to get a better uh, level of standardization for CDN delivery activities. Um, that's probably what we need now. It started. There is also uh, CMCD, you know, this uh, Common Media Client Data Initiative, also at CTA Wave, impulsed by uh, Will Lowe, uh, my good friend from uh, Akamai. We start to see like uh, implementations on the, the player side, on the CDN side. It's probably where we have the, the most work uh, remaining to do all of this uh, CDN and delivery chain. Uh, this is where we need more or interoperable uh, ways of connecting the, uh, you know, the platforms together. I think this brings us to a point which uh, is really interesting to me, and I think you, you also mentioned it in, in the blog. How do we keep innovating on one hand and standardizing on the other hand? Uh, because as you mentioned, if everything is standardized, then it's interoperable. The industry can grow. You can have different implementations of servers, of CDNs, of caches, of players that can all talk to each other. And each one can innovate and you know be the best in their uh, niche of the market. On the other hand, some companies go for vertical integration. You know, And you mentioned Apple, and this is a classic case. Of you know they're doing the the chips you know the ASICs the silicon they're doing the operating system they're doing the uh, the UX of the the phone itself of course all of the mechanics and some of the key applications also are made by Apple and and when it's vertically integrated everything works uh, great because inside their closed garden they iron out all of the, the the glitches and put out a product that is great and if you look at you know, other types of applications, you know, like messaging, you, you have closed gardens, you have WhatsApp, you have Telegram, 
uh, you have a Facebook messenger. They don't talk to each other. They're not interoperable. And social networks, of course, they're not interoperable. You have Facebook, you have Twitter, LinkedIn, completely separate because each one of them wants to have their data. You want, they want to control the data. They want to have access you know, to all that data and insights about their users and keep it to themselves. Or if you talk about uh, VR, again, closed garden systems, you know, like the Quest. So how do you see this developing in the future specifically for video streaming? If we talk about all of the, uh, the metaverse thing, it's probably the, the space where we're going to see the less amount of standardization. Although there is the OpenXR consortium and uh, the new uh, WebXR specification, so this is a JavaScript-based kind of development environment for metaverse applications, we can foresee that the uh, the interconnection of the all of the different metaverse subspaces is going to be difficult to achieve. And as you say, we don't feel that there is a lot of willing from the companies to work together and make it happen at the widest scale. So I'm pretty convinced that the standardization in the all of the metaverse uh, technology scope is going gonna, is gonna to be difficult. But that was the same for many years. If you recall, like the, all of the 3D standards, like VRML and so on, everyone was like uh, building custom extension or on top of the, uh, the standardized uh, VRML. So I think it's continuing. But outside of this uh, metaverse scope, if we take the example of the AB watermarking, you know, the fact that we standardize the interfaces between the encoder, the, the packager and origin and the CDN, it's not preventing innovation to happen because at the end of the day, what is the core value of those kind of technologies? The fact that you can connect pieces together is, is powerful. The, the core value is in the algorithm. It's not in the interconnection. So I think uh, the industry is starting to be conscious about it. And that's why we see those initiatives fostering uh, here and there at uh, CTA Wave, at SVL. So there is a lot of work happening and that's that's what we need. I think we need more standardization because we need basically implementers to have some choice. And that's valid at every step of the chain, right? As an implementer, I want to be able to replace my player on a specific platform by another one that, that is working better with a better ABR heuristics. I want to be able to swap my CDNs. I want to be able to uh, also probably swap my uh, origin and encoders because uh, I don't want to be tied with a, with a vendor for all of my life. The flexibility is good for you know the implementers. Obviously, the vendors, uh, usually they don't like it so much, but overall, it's beneficial to the whole ecosystem because if you are using more standardized approaches, you can cover multiple use cases for multiple customers and implementers uh, across continents because everyone has got different needs. So the fact of using standard is something that is actually growing the business, not reducing the business. I'm pretty sure about that. Right. And it's also driving innovation because when you have a standardization and you have choice, then it drives competition between the vendors to produce a better solution under the same standard than the other vendor. That is true. But you can still find companies who are like uh, trying to push like proprietary approaches to differentiate themselves from the others. For lock-in. For lock-in, yeah. It can happen, but it's probably not successful at the end of the day, just because, you know, if you look at LCEVC, so this is a very interesting technology, you know, all of this enhancement layer, and it's standardized at MPEG, so Vinova did the work, and that's really good to see. But, uh, you know, the success of a technology is not only the standardization of it, it's also the fact that it's spreading in the ecosystem that you license the technologies to other 
vendors who can produce like, you know, uh, for example, LCVC encoders or LCVC players. If you want the technology to be successful, you need this to spread in a, in a very wide uh, way. If not, uh, I think the, the adoption is going to be limited in the industry. The fact that the technology is standardized and, and good, uh, which is my opinion about uh, LCVC, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. So we need to simplify probably all of these uh, licensing things and, uh, you know, uh, the, the patent pool. The patent pools are really something that is uh, hurting the, uh, the industry. Overall, it's very rare when it's, it's working fine. Remember all of the stories about HEVC pools and how it slowed down the adoption in the industry. Now, we remember it very well. And on, only today we read about MPEG LA suing uh, Samsung over HEVC patent infringement because they're not paying the MPEG LA royalties anymore. Yeah, so um, we need more fluidity, things to be more simple for technologies to spread. Of course, this is a business overall. We are in the industry, so it's, we are not doing this for pleasure, right? But I think uh, we need a bit more flexibility in terms of how the technologies are, are spreading in the ecosystem, that's for sure. Yeah, we agree with you there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, Nicholas, thank you uh, so much for joining us on this episode of the Video Insiders. Your insights are amazing. Uh, and we do encourage all of our listeners to make sure you read this blog. It is, it's very well written. It's easy to read, and, and it's written from a practitioner's viewpoint. So it certainly is an engineering blog post, but it's really for those who are working in the industry who are actually deploying technologies, and so we can't uh, recommend it enough. Nicholas, what is coming up? You, you must have other blogs in the works, so uh, what can we see? Yeah, yeah. Actually, this last article uh, gave me, you know, back the uh, excitement uh, of uh, writing. So I can tell you that uh, probably the next two ones coming up on the blog are first kind of a how-to video production article about a, a setup that I've been developing for my DJ activities during COVID. I was as I was bored, I, I built like a, a whole studio with a you know a green screen uh, chroma key uh, thing. And I'm, um, I'm actually now doing some, uh, some VJ sessions on Twitch. And so I think, uh, yeah, I'm going to try to share the, uh, you know, some insights on, on the setup, how to connect the hardware, the software, how to achieve this kind of a VJ experience. Uh, so hopefully that's going to be, uh, useful for DJs who wants to go to the next stage and be uh, a VJ. And I guess the second one is going to be a follow up of what I was, uh, previously writing for streaming media magazine. So you remember this, uh, state of MPEG dash couple of years ago. So I want to do the follow-up of this and that's going to be the state of Dash LS because now Dash and HLS are kind of a, a converging thing. Obviously some gaps are still there, but yeah, I want to write this, uh, this next edition of the, uh, the state of Dash and HLS. So that's probably uh, what's coming up next in, a, in the next few months. Awesome. So yeah, we can't wait for that. And of course, we'll publish it in our LinkedIn group when it comes out. So thank you again, uh, Nicholas, for joining us on the Video Insiders today. Thanks a lot, Mark and Dro, for giving me this opportunity. It was nice to uh, talk with you, and uh, I hope it's going to be interesting for your uh, audience and your, and your group. It certainly will be, and uh, thank you again. Well, uh, Dror, as we always say, happy encoding. Happy encoding, everyone, and see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders Podcast.
If you'd like to appear on the show, just send an email to thevideoinsiders at beamer.com. That's B-E-A-M-R.com with a brief description on what you're working on and why you think it's interesting for our audience. This podcast is sponsored by Beamer Imaging. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity that they represent.